You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Over the last few weeks, we have been looking at the case law that God gave the people of Israel. And these laws were teaching the people of Israel how to worship and how to live together, how to be a nation to promote social justice and generosity. God was giving them the foundation for what would inform and shape this young nation. God gives them very clear instructions. And then, not long after this, we will see, starting in Exodus 25, over the next few weeks, we'll see God giving them very clear instructions, these very clear blueprints on how to build this sacred dwelling place. From Exodus 25 to 31, seven chapters of Scripture are devoted to these very particular and specific instructions, these blueprints for this sacred dwelling place that will, become to be, that will come to be known as the tabernacle. Up to this point, Moses would meet with God up on a mountain far from where the people were. But we begin to see that God desires to dwell amongst his people. He does not want to be up on a mountain. He wants to be right in the middle where his people are. So we've seen God give the law, chapters 20 to 23. And we will see in our sermons over the next few weeks, God willing, from Exodus 25 to 31, the instructions for the building of this sacred dwelling place, the tabernacle. But right in between these two major things in Exodus, we have Exodus 24. We have this event that sort of ties it all together. God gives them the law. He's going to give them these blueprints. But we have this very elaborate moment This very important moment that takes place right here in Exodus 24. Would you pray with me? And we'll look at Exodus 24. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being the God that longs to dwell in the midst of your people. Thank you for giving the nation of Israel your law. Thank you for giving us law that we can examine and meditate upon so that we can better know your character, your nature, your wisdom. God, I pray for this time we spend together this morning. Would you use this as means of sanctifying us? May we leave this place more committed to living for Jesus and be molded just a little bit more to be more like Jesus. I also pray for anyone under the sound of my voice that does not know you. If there's anyone here this morning that is not genuinely born again, that has not put all of their hope and trust in Christ, I pray that they would see the kindness of God in this passage. And that, Lord, as they see the kindness of God, may you grant them the gift of repentance. May they choose to believe in Jesus. I pray that this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So Moses and some of the leaders of the nation of Israel have been up on the mountain and they've been hearing from God and they come back to report to the people down at the bottom of the mountain. And we'll pick it up there at verse 3, Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So Moses has now given them all the rules, all the expectations that God had given 
him while he was on the mountain. And the people respond. Look at the second half of verse 3. It says, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Right? So the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people are responding back to God saying, yes, we hear your word, and yes, we will obey. We will do what you've told us to do. Now, of course, those of us who know the subsequent history of the nation of Israel, we know that they didn't quite live up to this commitment all that well. In the coming years and decades and centuries, we see them consistently being unfaithful to God. However, in the coming years and decades and centuries, we see a remarkable thing. We see God consistently being faithful to them, even though they are not faithful to God. God holds up his end of the bargain, even when they they do not hold up their end of the bargain. So God takes this moment, he hears their verbal commitment, and then he takes it a step further. He goes to establish and confirm a sacred covenant, a sacred, serious agreement. Look at verse 4. It says, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Okay, so what we're about to witness now is a ratification ceremony of sorts. This is the moment where God has heard their willingness to say, yes, we'll obey the law. And God is about to solidify, establish, and confirm this sacred, serious agreement between himself and his people here. And Moses instructs the young men to go get a bunch of oxen, and they bring the oxen over, and they sacrifice these oxen. Look at verse 6 and 7 with me. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood and threw it against the altar. So he takes the oxen, and he takes all the blood, he drains it out of them, and he puts it in these basins. He takes half of the blood in these basins. And the other half of the blood, he pours it out all across this altar that he has built there at the bottom of the mountain. Now, I don't know how much blood is in an ox. And I did not Google it because I've got a very weak stomach and I couldn't risk some bloody cattle showing up on my screen and me just hurling. That would not be a good sight. I, I have a very weak stomach. I could never be in medicine. It's, it's terrible. When I go get a, a shot or a needle, I've got to look away at, like, like, a, like I'm six years old. It's awful. So I didn't Google it. If you want to Google it, you go ahead. But oxen are big. There's a, there's a lot of ox, oxen here, and they're large. I would imagine there's a lot of blood being filled, buckets and buckets of blood being filled into these basins and being poured out onto this altar. Verse 7 says this, Then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. Right, so he takes half of this blood, he pours it out on the altar, okay, and then he's reading, and he's, the other half is in these basins, and then he's reading the book of the covenant, which would have included the Ten Commandments and these case laws that we see in Exodus 21, 22, 23. Moses is reading this to them, and they respond again in verse 7, similarly to the way they responded earlier in verse 7. In the second half of verse 7, they say, they say this, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And we will be obedient. This part of the scene sort of reminds me a little bit of a modern wedding ceremony. 
Right? This is, I've officiated several weddings in my life, and when we, when we have a wedding ceremony, we are, we're getting up, we've got, you know, bride and groom there, and we're, we're challenging them, we're exhorting them. Here are the expectations God has for you as a husband, as a wife, as a couple, right? We're, we're, we're exhorting them with these specific expectations, and then people respond by saying, I do. That's sort of what's happening here. Moses is saying, here's what God has said, here are the expectations, and the people respond with, and I do. We will be obedient. They say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Look at verse 8 with me. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, this is something you probably should not ever see at a modern wedding ceremony. This would be very weird if you were at a wedding and we started throwing blood on the people. We would not want to go down that route. <laughs> that would be weird. You would have to go through some dry cleaning or something. Yeah. Right, but Moses takes half of the blood from the ox and he pours it on the altar. And then the other half are these basins. And he reads the covenant. The, the, it's established. And then he takes the blood from the basins and he starts to throw it onto the people. Remember, it's a lot of blood. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Some, some scholars and commentators think that the people of Israel at this point are more than a million people strong. This is a lot of blood coming their way, right? And I don't know how he did this. I don't know if he had like a soup ladle. I don't know. I don't know if he had like a towel and he's like waving. I have no idea how Moses, the scripture does not tell us how he did this. But he took basins of blood and he threw it all over the people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant. The blood has been poured out on the altar, and the blood has been poured on the people. The, the, the imagery, the, sim, the symbolism is sort of to say, God has poured out this blood, and the blood is on you. We are now of one blood. We are now a people. We are now a family, and we share the same blood. Also, the last time these people were covered with blood in one way or another would have been at the Passover during the 10th plague. Right? Several months earlier, they were in Egypt, and God was demonstrating his power to Pharaoh through the 10 plagues. And when we get to the 10th plague, we read in Exodus 11 that God says, At midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. And so God says, I'm going to come through the land and the firstborn of every family will die. Except those that are covered by blood. And in Exodus 12, he gives, them, he gives the people of God instruction. He tells them to take a lamb without blemish and to take the blood of that lamb and to put it over the doorposts. And God says, when I come through, every home that's covered by blood, I will pass over and they will not suffer. And the firstborn of that family will not die. And so if you are one of these Israelite people here at the bottom of the mountain with this blood being thrown on you, you can't help but think back. You know, this is now the second time where blood is on top of us. The blood is over us. It's covering us. And it will protect us from the wrath of God that we rightly deserve. And of course, this foreshadows to the New Testament where those of us who are covered by the blood of Jesus are protected from the wrath of God. So here in, verse, in Exodus 24, we see these people, they're being covered by blood. They recognize that the blood that covers them will allow them to experience God's mercy. 
And this is not the first time we have an altar scene like this. Uh, it's, it, this has happened before in Genesis 15. This will happen again in Exodus, 20, uh, Exodus 29 with the establishment and ordination of the priesthood, with the Levitical line, the establishment and ordination of the priest of the nation of Israel. And every time we examine these covenantal, ramif- these covenantal ratification ceremonies, there's a couple things that we notice. But one of the major things that we ought to observe is that those of us who are a part of the covenant, if you're, a, if you're an Israelite person here in Exodus 24, watching these oxen be sacrificed and this blood being poured out and the blood being thrown on you, what you should be thinking to yourself is, that should be me right there. That ox was innocent. Really, it should be me on that altar. It should be me being killed. It should be my blood being poured out because that's what I richly deserve. Romans 6.23, the Apostle Paul says that the wages of sin is death. It's wages. It's like the paycheck that you earn. The paycheck, the spiritual paycheck that we've earned in this life because of our sin is death. We deserve that. And if God killed all of us and condemned all of us, he would not be wrong in doing so. He would be just and righteous. And this is the case for those of us who are New Testament believers. When we think about the cross, when we think about Jesus, we should pause and tell ourselves, that should have been me on that cross. Should have been me on that cross. Should have been you on that cross. And instead, it was Jesus on the cross. It's an important thing to remember whenever we examine these sorts of ratification ceremonies. All right, let's continue. Look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9 says this, Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So Moses and some of the leaders of Israel, they, go, they start to go up this mountain, and it says that they saw God. Now, if you're a good student of the Bible, you should instantly pause when you, and it says you saw God and you go, wait a minute, I thought no one can see God and live. Isn't that, isn't that somewhere in the scripture that would be a good observation to notice? To notice. And in Exodus 33, Moses, God does say to Moses, you cannot see my face and live. He does say that. But this language is unique. This language here, when God is saying, you cannot see my face, I think God is, is speaking to his own transcendence. That there, there are things about God that are just categorically different that we can never understand on this side of eternity. And the language is unique. Later in Exodus 23, he says this. That God says that I speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. In Numbers 12, God says that he speaks mouth to mouth with God, with Moses, excuse me. Deuteronomy 26, it says that God rescued the Israelites from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. But here's the thing. God doesn't have a face. God doesn't have a mouth. God doesn't have a hand. And he doesn't have an arm. Not in the way we think. In John 4, 24, it says that God is spirit. In Exodus Exodus 33, Moses will ask to see God's back. But again... Uh, excuse me, he'll ask to see God's face, and God will say, no, I'll show you my back. But again, he doesn't have a back either. This is what we call anthropomorphic language. 
Certainly most of you are probably familiar with this, but just in case you're not, anthropomorphic language is when we use human attributes to describe a non-human thing. The biblical authors use this type of language to describe God, to talk about God. And God uses this language to talk about himself. So it'll say things like, I talk to Moses face to face or mouth to mouth when he doesn't have a face or doesn't have a mouth. And so these are metaphors. This is hyperbolic language often to help us understand a point. And so when God says, I talk to Moses face to face or mouth to mouth, what he's saying is, I've got an intimate friendship with Moses. Me and Moses, we're tight. We have a great, strong relationship. Moses reveres me. He trusts me. He loves me. We're close. We're intimate. That's what God is saying when he uses this language. God does not have a face or a mouth, but when he says, you cannot see my face and live, what he's saying to Moses is, Moses, you can't, there are things about my glory, there are things about me that you can't handle at current time. And if I revealed them to you, they would kill you. They'd be far too intense. But, There are some portions of God that he can reveal to us, that we can handle, and that he longs to reveal to us. So when it says that these men here in Exodus 24 saw God, it means that God revealed a portion of himself to them that they could see and not kill them. But there are other things he could not reveal to them because if he did, it would be too intense for them. They couldn't handle it. It would kill them. Here it says that God is reveal, God is, it's alluding to the fact that God is revealing himself to them. It says that, that they see this pavement made of blue sapphires. Now, I consulted about five different Old Testament commentaries this week and feel like I got about six different opinions on precisely what this is happening here. There is disagreement amongst biblical scholars. You're welcome to go ahead and press into that. But there is a consensus amongst the biblical scholars that I consulted this week. The consensus is that the fact that the pavement is clear means something significant. And we we see this language elsewhere in the scripture, twice in the book of Ezekiel and also in the book of Revelation. We see this, these men are seeing this image. They're seeing a vision and they see what appears to be the underneath or the feet of God, and there's this pavement under the, fo- the footstool of God that is made of blue sapphires, but they're the most beautiful sapphires you've ever seen, and they're clear. You can see right through them, and the, the imagery of clarity says to us that God is revealing something. Before, you couldn't see into the heavenlies. You couldn't see where I'm sitting, but I've made this clear. Now that we're in covenant, I've made this clearer, so now you can see a portion of me that you could not see before you were in covenant. Now that God has established a covenant, now that we are in covenant with him, God says, I'm going to reveal more of myself to you. There are things you could not see before. There are elements of my glory that you could not see, that you could not handle. But now that you're in covenant with me, covered by the blood, now you'll be able to see a portion of me. I'm going to make it clear so that you can see. This is an incredible privilege for these men on this mountain in Exodus 24 to be able to see a portion of God, to see an element of his glory being revealed to them that had never been revealed to them before. This is an amazing privilege. But that's still a limit. They can't see all of God. They cannot see the whole glory of God. Verse, look at verse 11. It says this, 
and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Again, more anthropomorphic language here. God does not hands, does not have hands the way we do. So he's basically saying, yes, you can come closer to me. You can see a portion. I'm going to make it clear. I'm going to reveal a portion of myself to you that you've never seen before, but I'm not going to put my hands on you because that would be too much. There's still limits in this covenant that they're in. I'm not going to put my hands on you, not yet, because that would be a form of intimacy that would be too much to hand, for you to handle. It would be too intense. It could kill them. They could see God's feet. They could see under God's feet. They could, they could get a glimpse of God's glory. But there is still some form of limit to what they can see or do with God. Now, this, this covenant that they have here is a massive step forward for the people of God. They're able to commune with God in a way that no one has ever communed with God, and yet there's still a limit to what they can experience in this old covenant here being established in Exodus 24. But they could eat with God. Look at verse 11. It says, they beheld God and ate and drank. They beheld God. They beheld God. He's beautiful. He's awesome. He's amazing. And they ate and they drank. Eating and drinking with someone is the sign that you've got a good friendship with them. It isn't what you do when you want to develop friendship with someone. Hey, let's go grab coffee. Let's go grab dinner. And the greatest symbol is if you have people over to your home. I love having people over at home to eat with us. Every Wednesday night, our community group comes over. We put a spread out, Oreos, chocolate. We got some chips ahoy down here, chips and queso, fruit, and then we got veggies way down here. I don't go down that end. Stay on this end. Fruit to Oreos. That's my section. But we love it, right? I love it. And our, we don't put drinks out because they're in the fridge, and our community group knows you can go right in the fridge because we have a relationship. We're family. Hey, there's Diet Cokes in there. There's Coke Zeros. There's some carbonated water. Go ahead and grab it yourself because we have a relationship. We have an established friendship. There's an intimacy here. You know me. I know you. You're coming in proximity to me. You're coming into this place where I live. I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to drink with you. And this is what God is doing with Moses and some of these leaders and the 70 elders. He's saying, come up the mountain. I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to drink with you. This is an amazing, an amazing uh, thing that shouts to us the kindness of God. The 16th century pastor and theologian John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, he says this. He says, herein we see God's kindness reveal. When in manifesting himself to his elect, he does not altogether absorb and reduce them to nothing. In sum, therefore, Moses shows us that it was a miracle that the rulers of Israel remained safe and sound, although the majesty of God had appeared to them. In this, God's kindness reveals itself, Calvin says. The fact that God allowed this to happen, and when they showed up, he didn't immediately just wipe them off the planet, just kill them immediately, shows that God is kind. And the same is true for us. The fact that God doesn't just kill us immediately shows us that he is kind. And he longs for a relationship with us. He longs to commune with his people. He has a passionate desire 
for you to see his glory and experience his presence. And God went through incredible lengths so that we could enter his presence. All that God has been doing up to this point, all through the book of Genesis, rescuing them from Egypt, bringing these people together in the wilderness, establishing this covenant through this elaborate ceremony, all of these things that God is doing is because he is convinced, he is focused, he is laser-focused on having his people enter his presence and is laser-focused on dwelling amongst his people because he loves you. He loves you. I think I've got a small glimpse of this or understanding this a little bit better now that I'm a father. Um, To me, a Friday night, the most fun thing to do on a Friday night is to hang out with my girls, my wife and daughter. I just love it. I just sit on the couch and watch my daughter and she just smiles or laugh. You know, I take pictures of her. My wife and I, we text photos back and forth of each other, of her to each other. Like, I love hanging out with her. I just want to spend time with her. And I would do anything, any, I would spend any cost. I would do whatever it took to make sure my time with her is undistracted and focused. I do whatever it takes to clear my schedule so that I can just spend time with the ones I love most. And we see God spending, going, through, going to incredible lengths to ensure that we can enter his presence and that he can dwell with his people. In the second half of this chapter, Moses will go back up the mountain again. He'll take Joshua with him, but then Joshua can't go all the way up. Moses has to go alone because here we have again a limit to this covenant. The elders could come up and experience God. They could eat with God. They could, they could drink with God, but they could not go all the way up the mountain and experience all of the glory the way Moses could. There was a limit to this. But, of course, that would change. In the coming chapters, we see them develop, building the tabernacle, and God will come and dwell amongst the people. And, of course, it will change again centuries later when Jesus comes to establish a new covenant when he makes himself available to all people, when he establishes a new covenant where there is no limit to the intimacy that we can have with God. On the night that Jesus is betrayed, he takes that cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. He recognizes his blood is about to be poured out. He's alluding back to this Exodus 24 moment. At the the night he's betrayed, before he goes to the cross, he's saying, I'm about to pour out my blood, and I'm going to establish a new covenant. Just like an old covenant was established with the pouring out of blood, I'm going to establish a new covenant here. And you will be allowed to enter into covenant with God in a way that you've never seen or experienced before. Our God goes to great lengths to ensure that we can experience his presence And then he pursues us. He chases after us to bring us into his family. Jesus tells us this parable in Luke 15. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. The God that loves you, has gone to great lengths to pursue you, and has done what it took to ensure you can be in his family. I heard Pastor John Piper once say it this way in his sermon. He says, God in eternity looked upon me and he said, I want that man in my family. I will pay for him to be in my family with my son's own life. That is mega 
off the charts love, Piper says. Church, God saw you. He loved you. He chose you. And he did what it took to get you into his family because he wanted you to experience his presence and he wants to abide in the midst of his people. God wants you to experience his presence. He loves you. Jesus did what it took. He entered the human story. He becomes a man. He lives among us. He lives a life that we should have lived, but we could not. And he dies a death in our place. It should have been me on that cross. It should have been you on that cross. But Jesus dies in our place. He did what it took to ensure that we could enter into his presence On the third day, he defeats death, he raises from the dead, and he makes the offer of salvation for whoever would trust in Christ. Whoever believes on him will have everlasting life. The old covenant, it had a lot of great value. There's a lot of good in the old covenant, particularly for those Israelites that we see in Exodus 24 and the generations that followed them. But this new covenant... The new covenant that's ratified by Jesus with his own blood? Oh, this covenant, this new covenant is better than the old covenant. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He has secured our eternal redemption. So what do we do with this? I have a brief exhortation for you. We all sin. All of us fail. All of us have moments where we are disappointed in ourselves. All of us have moments where we feel shame. And in those moments, we are tempted to believe a lie. And the lie is this. The lie is you've sinned too much to come to God. You're too dirty to come to God. We cannot come to him or pursue intimacy with him. But here's the truth. That no matter how much you've sinned, you can come to God. And those of us who are in covenant with God, we are covered with blood. And we are invited into God's presence to commune with him, to eat with him, to drink drink with him. No matter how bad you've failed, no matter how big you've sinned, no matter what you've done or where you've been, you can always come to Jesus. You can always come to Jesus. He is the one that went to great lengths to ensure that you could enter his presence. He is the one that went to great lengths to ensure that you could come into God's family. So church, my encouragement to you, when you feel like you've failed, when you feel like you're a disappointment, when you feel like you've sinned big, that is the moment to run to Jesus. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Cast your cares on him because he loves you. He loves you. Friends, this is an incredible privilege that we have to be able to come to God no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, a privilege to come to him and enter into his presence. And this privilege was purchased by Jesus at the cross when he established 
that new covenant. And that brings us to the table. This is the table where we remember that with his own blood, he secured our eternal redemption. This is the table where we remember that the God who loves us has made it possible for us to enter in his presence, and he longs to dwell with us. So no matter what we've done, we can throw ourselves on the mercy of God. We can run to him. At this table, we remember that Jesus established a new covenant and that we can enjoy his presence forever because of what he has done on our behalf. This meal was open to anyone here who is a follower of Jesus. If you, are genu- if you have genuinely trusted in Christ, then this meal is for you. If you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus, you have not trusted in Christ, I would encourage you not to participate in this meal. When the juice and bread come, just let it pass. But do not let the moment pass. If you are not a follower of Jesus today, instead of taking communion with us, I exhort you, I encourage you, take Christ instead. If you have any questions on what that means, feel free to come on up after the service and have a conversation with us about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. City's church, his body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.